In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped with. In her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, "Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb! And why is this granted to me that my mother, that the mother of my Lord, should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy." And she, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, "My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold." From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy for those who fear Him, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever, and Mary remained in her with her about three months and returned to her home. We're going to spend some time thinking about that passage uh, that Ben has just uh, read for us so well from Luke chapter 1. Um, so if you have a Bible, please have that open in front of you over the next few minutes. And um, Before we, we, we spend some time thinking about it together, though, uh, I'm going to ask for God's help. Uh, so let's pray together. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Our God and Father, we pray that as a result of our time thinking about your word together now, each of us would grow in our joy at the news of the arrival of King Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, the, the history of the Western world has been punctuated by revolutions by uh, relatively sudden changes in the landscape, whether politically or socially, often caused by some sort of uprising or revolt. Think, for example, of the American Revolution, where British rule was overthrown in America in the 18th century, or of the Russian Revolution at the start of the 20th century. Events that, that completely reordered society, flipped things on their heads in a really short space of time. 
Uh, well, one of the features of those kinds of revolutions is that many of them have had, well, sound tracks, if that's the right way to put it. Uh, they've had songs that have both sort of captured the mood of the revolution and have often served to call people to action. You may or may not know that that is what the Marseillaise, the French national anthem, is. It was written during the French Revolution. To arms, citizens, they sing. Form your battalions. Let's march. Let's march. It's a call to rise up and to act. And I wonder if in the the, the pantheon of revolutions and of revolutionary songs of the past, I wonder where you would rank our reading for this morning from Luke chapter 1. You might have noticed as we read it a few moments ago that it does mostly comprise of a song written by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And and as Ben read it for us, I wonder if it struck you as being, well, particularly revolutionary or not. Scan with me again. Look at verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, sings Mary, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. It sounds an awful lot like a praise song, doesn't it? A hymn. It's the stuff of church liturgy, not of revolution. And yet you might be surprised to hear that throughout history, Mary's song has actually been treated as being revolutionary. When India was under British rule, for example, Mary's song was banned from public reading and singing because the lyrics were deemed to be too subversive and too dangerous. It was banned too in Guatemala in the 1980s and in Argentina as well, because it was understood to be a song of revolution. And we're going to see this morning that those who banned the song were in one sense absolutely right. Mary's song really is a revolutionary song. It's all about the arrival of Jesus the first Christmas time, And it makes clear that that arrival signaled an absolute revolution, a radical reversal. Where those state authorities in Guatemala and India and Argentina got it wrong, though, is that it's not about a political revolution. It's far, far bigger than that. It's about an eternal revolution, a complete reordering of how we expect things to work, a flipping of them on their heads. And not only is it an eternal revolution, it's one that has immediate implications for each one of us this morning. And so we're just going to unpack those as we walk through the the song together this morning. Let's think about that under our first heading for this morning. Jesus' arrival signaled a remarkable reversal. Now we pick up the story, if you will, read with me in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So we follow Mary as she travels to meet Elizabeth, who is around a hundred or so miles away from her home. And this isn't the first time we've met Mary and Elizabeth in Luke's account. We saw last week, if you were here, that both of them had experienced miraculous pregnancies. Elizabeth was getting older and had been unable to conceive up until that point when she fell pregnant. And Mary's pregnancy was miraculous because she was a virgin. And as the two women come together, we'll just notice that it it isn't really just the two of them. Verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth had been told that her baby would be the forerunner 
would, would announce God's long-awaited king. And before he's even born, he's doing just that. He jumps in the womb at the sound of Mary's greeting. His prophetic work begins in Elizabeth's womb. That jumping for joy triggers Elizabeth's joy too. Only she can use words to articulate what she's rejoicing in. Verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mary marvels, she rejoices, rather Elizabeth marvels, that Mary, the mother of her Lord Jesus, should come to her. And you can understand why, can't you? That the Lord of all creation should have stepped into that creation from the the, the glories of heaven to right down here as a tiny, fragile baby and should appear in her living room. It is just an extraordinary trajectory, isn't it? But what I want you to notice this morning is that the direction of travel in Luke 1 isn't just from up there to down here. That's what we tend to think of, rightly, when we think of Christmas time. He came down to earth from heaven. We sang just a few moments ago, Christmas is the good news of God coming down. But in Luke 1, the direction of travel isn't just from up there to down here from glory to humility. No, it's from down here to up there. From humility to blessedness. We're given a sense of that blessedness in Mary's exchange with Elizabeth from verses 39 to 45. Read with me verse 32. Elizabeth says this of Mary. Sorry, 42. Elizabeth says this of Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Or verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The coming down of God to earth brings real blessing. And it brings particular blessing to the humble. To those who who don't think they deserve his arrival. Again, we've got a sense of that from Elizabeth's words in verse 43. Why is this granted to me, she asks. And Mary picks up the same theme. Look on with me to verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Can you see the marvel for Elizabeth and for Mary isn't just that God came down, mind-blowing and mind-bending though that is. It's that God came down in order to bless, to lift up the humble. Or in other words, in Jesus, the blessing and joy of heaven came down and became a nobody. And he did that so that nobody's humanly speaking, nobody's like Mary, could experience blessing and joy. Now that's fairly radical, isn't it? It's a complete reversal of how we tend to expect things to be. But it's also, it's worth saying, very personal. 
I wonder if you thought that too. Ben brought that out really well as he read, actually. Mary sings about God's grace towards her as an individual. My soul magnifies. My spirit rejoices. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary's song starts very much in the first person. And that might temper the way we read Luke chapter 1. You know, you may or may not be the kind of person who enjoys karaoke. I'm definitely not for what it's worth. Um, but I once did uh, work in a job, a Christmas job in hospitality, where I saw quite a number of people having a right good go uh, at karaoke. And that's the best way that could could describe it, I guess, having a right good go. They did their very best. Um, I'll be honest, it was uh, generally quite an uncomfortable experience as an onlooker. Uh, if I never hear another Bon Jovi song again, it'll be far too soon. Uh, but it could be quite jarring in another way, not just musically. When the lyrics of the song were completely out of kilter with the person who was singing them. So when the singer was, as occasionally happened, a young child, and they were singing a song about the heartbreak of their partner leaving them, or about the hardship of having to work nine to five in order to make a living. Those words clearly weren't theirs to sing. See, when you take one person's words and you put them in someone else's mouth like that, it can be quite jarring. And in one sense, that is how we should think of Mary's song. Mary can sing about God coming down to her because she's the famous virgin with child. But she was a special case, wasn't she? I mean, this this kind of thing doesn't happen all the time. Virgins don't get pregnant. That's what makes the whole thing so remarkable. And so in one sense, well, we can't sing Mary's song. But in another sense, we can Because you see, this kind of thing, the kind of reversal that Mary's singing about, well, it really does happen all the time. And it always has done. Because you see, God has always been a God of great reversals. Don't just take my word for that. Take Mary's. We'll think about that under our second heading this morning. Jesus' arrival signaled a remarkable reversal which is how God has always done things. Now, things do start very personally in Mary's song. She's reflecting on God's particular kindness to her in this particular way. But I wonder if you noticed the shift as things progress in the song, that Mary's reflections get less and less personal, and the direction of God's kindness sort of funnels out the way. Notice that with me. Read verse 50 again. And God's mercy is for those who fear him. That's speaking a bit more than just Mary, isn't it? Or verse 52. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. As you read on, the song ends up being less and less about Mary's specific and personal situation. And if anything, Mary's situation ends up illustrating a much, much wider point. That this is how God works. More than that, actually, it's how God has always worked. Read with me again, verse 50. From generation to generation, his mercy is. And that means it's an ongoing thing. It's always been like that and always will be. He has treated his old covenant people, Israel, in the same way. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, the point is, Mary's situation is obviously remarkable. But in another sense, it's absolutely to be expected. 
Because you see, God has always taken the humble and exalted them, raised them up. And not only that, he's always taken the proud and brought them low. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Just as the low are lifted up, so too the high are brought down low. And all of that does help us to get our bearings with Mary a bit, I think, doesn't it? Mary's so often been misunderstood throughout history. She's been treated by some, for example, particularly in a Catholic context, as though she is divine in and of herself. And it is just worth saying that doesn't have any legs at all in the biblical accounts. It's the fact that she's so normal that makes the whole story so amazing. But even though she is normal, she does respond to God in the right way. See, the view we get of her from Luke 1 is as a humble, faithful believer. A believer in the God of great reversals and whose own personal experience models the shape of such great reversals. And I wonder how that pattern strikes you this morning. A lot of us really enjoy a good reversal story, particularly around Christmas time, actually. Think of Dickens' Christmas Carol, where the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge is given a good dose of humility when he sees his past, his present, and his future. And by the end of the story, he's completely changed. He's this big cuddly figure at the end of Dickens' story. Perhaps a slightly more uncouth example, think of Home Alone, where the young boy who's left on his own has to deal with two seasoned housebreakers. And yet what you're sort of expecting to happen in that situation doesn't happen. The apparently vulnerable boy manages to overcome those hardened burglars by being absolutely savage himself, as it turns out. See, reversal stories are really quite attractive. But I wonder who you tend to identify yourself with in each of those stories. If, if you read or watch A Christmas Carol, or you watch Home Alone, who do you imagine yourself to be in the story? My guess is that we tend not to identify ourselves with the strong-looking baddies, do we? We're more like Bob Cratchit than Ebenezer Scrooge. We're on Kevin McAllister's side rather than those two thieves, Harry and Marv. And we might do the same as we read Mary's story in Luke chapter 1 identify ourselves with the poor and lowly Mary to cheer her on as she experiences this wonderful reversal. The question Luke would have us think about, though, is, are you sure that's who you are in this story? Is that how you behave, how you live your life? The humble, the helpless, recognizing they're unable to lift themselves up out of the dirt. Or might we instead be more like the proud of verse 51? The mighty of verse 52? The rich of verse 53? Now what would it look like to be the proud or the mighty or the rich? Well, actually, it can be quite hard to spot. As you read on through Luke's account of Jesus' life, we meet a rich tax collector and a senior military official and a middle-class fisherman. And all of them are held out as being models of the kind of humility that Mary has in Luke chapter 1. So the point can't be that that having authority in and of itself is inherently bad or, or that having money is inherently bad. But the sentence is, I think, 
that the things that might look and might feel quite sort of steady and quite secure and quite strong here on earth, those things that we are tempted to lean on and to trust in, well, they're ultimately very shaky indeed. Whether power or pride and self-sufficiency or money. You see, if the creator God of all things really is a God of reversals, placing your confidence in any of those things rather than in him, well, it will ultimately be your downfall. Now, what might it look like in practice to do that? Well, again, the troubling thing is that it might not look all that awful to our own eyes. It might well be someone who's very socially able and articulate and, and very kind and a, and a good neighbor, but who inwardly shakes their fist at the message about Jesus. Who is he to tell me that I'm helpless and hopeless on my own, like Mary was? Who's he to tell me that I need a rescue? The message of Mary's song, and of Christmas as a whole, in fact, is that we really are all needy like Mary. Not materially necessarily, but that we are spiritually destitute. And that means that what we might think makes us strong and secure in the here and now, well, it will ultimately lead to your downfall. Because the creator God of all things is a God of reversals. He has promised that Jesus will return one day, not as an infant in a cot, but as a ruling and reigning king. And when he does, well, what feels and looks like strength now will be exposed as weakness. And in fact, for Christians who follow a God of reversals, this bites very strongly for us too. It's possible to consider yourself a clear Christian, to to, to know that we need God's grace, his rescue, if our problem with God is going to be dealt with, to be thankful to him for showing us that grace in Jesus and in his death in our place, and yet having experienced all of that, to still function as though our gifts And the resources we've been able to accrue and the standing we have in our own social circles and workplace are what really gives us security. Because frankly, the the size of your bank balance, the size of your office, the title on your email footer often feel much more tangible than the kind of security that God brings. And if that sounds anything like you, Luke 1 really should give us pause. God is a God who exalts the humble and who humbles the exalted. That has always been his MO. His call to follow him, remember, is a call to take up a cross, to set aside our own interests in order to follow him. And so by trying to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps to pursue our own kind of greatness, we might just find ourselves on the wrong end of that reversal. Now, what are we to do if we can identify that sort of heart set and mindset in ourselves? Well, Luke does highlight what the right response is, as he tells us about Mary. And so that's our final point this morning. The right response to him is humble belief. Now, in both of the examples I've given you of reversal stories this morning, in Christmas Carol and in Home Alone, you are expected to root for the underdog simply because they're the underdog. So you're rooting for Bob Cratchit in Christmas Carol because Scrooge makes his life pretty difficult. And you're rooting for the little boy for Kevin McAllister in Home Alone just because he's clearly vulnerable and all alone. 
And it's possible to think that Mary is painting the Christian message in a similar sort of light. That God will bless people simply by virtue of them being humble. And if that is the message of Luke, you can see why it would make some state authorities pretty nervous, wouldn't you? That verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. If you're the authorities in India or Guatemala, that might sound like the stuff of social revolution. But it's worth saying this isn't a political manifesto. Mary is humble, that much is true. But that isn't all we're told about her. Just notice how it is that her gracious reversal comes about in Luke 1, where the blessing comes from. Verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed. Now, if you've been here with us over the past couple of weeks, that might be giving you deja vu. Because the main idea over the past two Sundays in, in Luke has been about belief and about certainty of belief. But what we've been thinking about so far this morning takes us a tad further than last week and the week before. See, the kind of certainty of belief that Luke thinks we should have after listening to Mary's song isn't just belief in the historicity of the story, although we should have that. No, it's a belief in the substance and in the shape of the story. To grow our confidence in this being how God really does work. Because this message, the message about God's tendency to reverse things, is so counter to how we often tend to think. We live in a world where the humble don't get ahead. They tend to be left behind, actually. You might have experienced that in your own workplace. I remember one individual from the church we used to serve in before we moved to Hebron. He described his own industry, and he said to get to the top in his industry, well, you really have to have the sharpest elbows, by which he meant you elbow everyone else out of the way. And that's how things work. It was accepted practice in his industry. And that isn't just an industry's problem. It isn't just someone else's problem. It's also very often the way we think ourselves. We can persuade ourselves that if we're to be really safe in life, really blessed in life, but we only get that if we secure respectability and authority in our workplace or social group, or if we make it up to the next rung on the standard of living social ladder. Even as Christians, we can fully assent to the tenets of the Christian faith at a, a sort of intellectual level, but functionally end up living a very slightly modified version of the life we would have lived otherwise. Craving the same things we would otherwise have craved, even if we weren't a Christian. Finding security and worth in life in the same things we otherwise would have done. And yet into that culture, into that mindset, the message of Jesus is dynamite. It's revolutionary. It flips that mindset on its head. God has promised that one day anyone who has humbly trusted in him taken up a cross to follow him, will be lifted up, will enjoy his presence eternally. And if we really are certain of that, well, then we won't want to clamber to the top ourselves, will we? We'll hold lightly to anything we might be tempted to trust in in the here and now. We won't trust in finances or social performance because one day we know they'll count for nothing. Now, that idea might be threatening to to, to many of us, I guess, and and the the self-sufficiency we might trend towards. But for others among us, I wonder if it's a deeply reassuring thing. 
Perhaps you're the kind of person who feels like they have nothing to offer the world or to offer to God. Who knows fine well that they're very poor, spiritually speaking. Who can genuinely identify with someone like Mary and her vulnerability. Well, if that is you, well, then the good news that God is a God of great reversals really is good news. Because the incarnation isn't the end of the story. The arrival of Jesus isn't the end of the story. Mary hints at that in her song. Verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That takes us beyond kindness to her in giving her this particular child, doesn't it? Beyond even who the child would be, that he would be God himself. And takes us all the way to what that child came to do. He came as a saviour. And we thought through that chain of events just a few weeks ago when we were studying Philippians here on Sunday mornings. You might remember that. Paul wrote, being found in human form, that Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't just come down to earth from heaven, extraordinary though that was. He came down further still, all the way to the ignominy of a cross. And he did that so that we, spiritually unworthy though we are, could be lifted up. Could live and reign with him eternally, if only we would humbly trust in him. Now for the proud, this song really is a threatening one tells you that you're on a collision course with the creator God but for the humble who appreciate your weakness and your need of a rescuer well the Jesus revolution really is worth singing about because this revolution is for you now if you hear this morning and you're just looking into Christian things perhaps I wonder what you make of all of that you might well have come in here this morning under the impression that the God of the Christian faith is much like the God of every other world religion. They're all much of a muchness, to be honest. I wonder if you can see, though, just how surprising, how different the God of the Bible really is. He is mighty and powerful, more mighty and powerful than anything of which we could conceive. And yet he reaches down, down, down into the muck and the mire. And he does that to reverse, to bring real and lasting blessing to people who turn away from their self-reliance and trust in him. Now, if that piques your interest, I really think it should. (laughs) And if it piques your interest, in the new year, we're going to be running a course called Hope Explored. It'll run over three sessions on consecutive weeks in January, where we'll think about the hope of the Christian faith. And it'll be space for you to come with questions and to look at the primary texts for yourself. We would really love it if you came along. There are flyers for the course downstairs. If you want to know more, you can take one of those away or fill one in and post it in the little post box downstairs or speak to me or to Duncan, who was chairing this morning once we're done we'd love to chat to you about that each of us are spiritually poor and weak and helpless and hopeless whether we feel like that or not and there is nothing we can do to fix that but you see god can and god has by sending this jesus as the rescuing reversing king And so what we would have each of us do this morning is to turn to him humbly in need of his rescue. To trust in his cross alone for that rescue. And to rejoice. 
because we can sing with Mary. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Let's pray to him now. Our God and Father, we praise you as the God of all creation, as the one who is sovereign and mighty and powerful, and yet a God who has stooped down, down into the muck and the mire of a fallen and broken and sad world, a world which has rejected you, and has done that to bring about an extraordinary reversal, to take those who are humble and needy, and helpless, and to lift us up, lift us up eternally, in the knowledge that one day we will enjoy you and be with you forever. We thank you and praise you for that, for the good news of the Lord Jesus. We ask this morning you would please humble us where we are self-reliant, And help us, please, to appreciate and to enjoy the freedom that the news of this great reversal does bring us this morning as we look to take up a cross and to follow you, Lord Jesus. And we ask that even today someone would please hear this news for the very first time and would humbly embrace it for themselves, experiencing this reversal now and into eternity. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.